Hello, and welcome to the RP HealthCast by Rooney Partners. I'm your host, Jeffrey Friedman. A very controversial topic over these past several months has been around COVID testing. And this comes especially as the CDC has flip-flopped their guidance several times last month on who should get tested and when they should get tested. Uh, We're even questioning the accuracy of the tests. After hearing about so many false positives or false negatives, and it's very disconcerting that the FDA is still having to ban companies and take some tests off the markets uh, due to inaccuracy. So that leads us to even more questions. Are some tests better than others? Are the rapid tests less reliable than lab tests? And why does it still take over a week in some instances to get the results? And does it even make sense getting tested if it takes over a week to get your results? So aside from testing to see if you have the virus, there are other things called antigen tests. And those are used to see if you've previously had COVID-19 and if your body has the necessary antibodies to fight off the virus. But again, there are all different types of antigen tests, either on the market or coming to the market, and they test different markers inside your body. So to make sense of all this testing information for us this week is our guest, Elizabeth O'Brien. Elizabeth is a senior healthcare writer for Money Magazine. Uh, Previously, she was a reporter for the Wall Street Journal's Market Watch for Smart Money and for several other financial publications. Elizabeth, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Jeffrey. Great. Now, before we dive into your reporting on testing and the coronavirus, I want to kind of introduce you to our audience and discuss your career. So for the past five years, you've been with money and you've mm-hmm. been writing about retirement and healthcare topics. But uh, for the past, I think you said 18 years, you've covered healthcare, retirement, and financial issues. And that's after receiving a master's in journalism from Columbia University. So I guess you've always knew you wanted to be a journalist, right? How do you get into this? Well, yeah, you would assume so. That's a fair assumption. But um, <laughs> I was always, you know, I was always that kid who loved to write. Even I remember, I think I was in fourth grade, uh, one of my classmates and I, a good friend and I, wrote a newsletter about the neighborhood. My parents Xeroxed it at work and we sold it door to door for 10 cents. So I was that kid growing up. You were that kid. I was that kid. But I don't think I had a sense then that I wanted to be a journalist because I don't think I had a great sense that this was, I didn't have any journalists in the family. I don't think I just recognized it as a profession till I got a lot older. So I didn't grow up wanting to be a crusading journalist. um, But even though I'm sort of a child of the Watergate era, um, but it kind of came, uh, sort of developed later in college for me, the the idea to pursue it as a profession, even though I'd always loved to write. Well, that's great. Um, it's interesting, though, you're, you're currently, your beat right now is healthcare and retirement. And mm-hmm. that is a huge, really broad territory to cover. So how do you pick your stories? I mean, there's only one of you. Yeah, you know? no, that's a good, that's a good question. It is a very broad beat. And um, I do also edit freelancer stories. So I do occasionally have help from freelancers. But even so, I definitely have to be selective um, in what I can cover because, you know, bandwidth issues. So, you know, it's what is a, a money story? What do I need to keep my readers 
informed of? You know, are there any upcoming deadlines to to be aware of for Medicare Medicare enrollment, for example? Or we had a special. There's an August 31st deadline to roll back your RMD for this year if you didn't want it. There's some specific you know things relating to the coronavirus and this year. Um, so in any case, it is just a matter of being selective. And and I have been covering this a while, so I do have a sense of what um, I need to jump on for my readership and what I maybe can you know pass on. Right. I mean, today's topic that we're going to discuss is is pretty specific, and mm-hmm. you you've been writing about antibody testing. Mm-hmm. Huge topic right now. Very very important. But let's start out you know from very broad level. Let's talk about the differences between antibody testing and COVID testing. If you could explain the difference. Yeah, that is a good question. So. The COVID testing, the diagnostic testing, you might have heard the phrase PCR test, that detects the presence of an active infection. So if you have symptoms, you get that test to see if you, or even if you don't have symptoms, plenty of people are getting it just to see if they have the virus, uh, regardless of whether they're symptomatic or not. And that is typically conducted with the swab in your nose. It almost tickles the brain. It goes way deep into your nose. And that detects the presence of an active infection, whereas the antibody test is typically conducted several weeks after you've recovered, and that can detect whether there are antibodies. That's a blood draw, and that detects whether there are antibodies in your blood that indicate that your body has battled the coronavirus. The antibodies are sort of the foot soldiers in this battle against the disease, and if you have, if they're, if they're left over in your blood, that means that you've, you know, fought the infection. Okay, got it. That's clear. So, the big question at hand, and at first we're going to be a little rhetorical, right? But mm-hmm. for the most technologically advanced society in the world, right, in the United States, mm-hmm. why are we having such a difficult time getting the testing right? And I want you to answer the question, but, uh, you know, for, for the listeners, I want to give some history here. Mm-hmm. So at the beginning of the year, the Food and Drug Administration discovered contamination in two labs at the Centers for Disease and Prevention, Mm. the CDC, right? Then the CDC introduced to the public some flawed diagnostic tests. Mm. Then that was followed with the FDA just allowing everything, permitting scores of companies to sell antibody tests. And many of these tests were just snake oil. They were plainly flawed, completely inaccurate. So some of these shoddy tests, some are actually still on the market, but they've Mm -hmm. taken most of them off the market. Meanwhile, obviously, the coronavirus is still spreading. We don't have any national standards on testing. Basic things like who, when, how, these are changing on a daily basis still. It's it's almost embarrassing. It's certainly appalling, all the missteps. Mm How is this possible? Yeah, I would agree. It is embarrassing and, and really appalling what's been going on. And I, I can't, um, I can't, don't have any special insight because I haven't done a lot of in-depth reporting on the federal response. To be honest, I focused a bit more on the science end. But from what I understand, the U.S. Is, was really cl- caught flat-footed. You know, we the Trump administration disbanded the pandemic task force that would have been poised to assist in this kind of situation back in t- 2018. They got rid of that. Um, And it just, you know, so we're caught in this reactive mode of, you know, trying to play catch up. And really, we should have been on top of it from the beginning. And I understand that that's what happened in South Korea. That country had 
retained a lot of the infrastructure that they used to fight SARS way back in the early 2000s. So even though that was quite a while ago, they had retained that infrastructure in place. So they were really able to get on top of this new coronavirus when it started to emerge, where the the U.S. was caught flat-footed and really had to play catch-up and really just was sort of inept. There was probably even more ineptitude on top of the sort of the late response for sure. Um, And it really has been discouraging because it's really led to the this unchecked spread that we're now seeing. Yes. And, and without these guidelines or an agency that was specifically in charge, um, it's kind of scrambling to get back. Cause as you said, it was dismantled in 2018. Mm-hmm. So now we're getting there. Now we have the tests, but mm-hmm. another problem has been the delay in testing results. Mm-hmm. So that's outside the government. That's kind of like the the quest and the and the right. lab corp. Those people. Yep. So uh, there was an interesting story. Uh, Elizabeth Rosenthal, who is the editor in chief mm-hmm. of Kaiser Health, now she published in the New York Times um, a, a story about waiting twelve days before receiving test results for her son. Yeah. And in her quote was, "Coronavirus testing in the United States has been bungled in every way imaginable." Yeah, that's pretty powerful coming from the editor in chief of Kaiser. Right. Mm -hmm. So what's your take on this? Is it just the 2018, um, you know, dissolution of that agency or is it the inability to rebuild this? Well, I think, you know, with the testing delays, we've also we have a capacity issue. And I remember reading that story when it came out and I was struck by it as well. I think, you know, we the federal government government made testing. And when we say in testing, and in her case, this was a PCR testing, so active infection testing, and, and she waited for a, a, too long to get those results. And one, uh, the federal government made these PCR tests free in many cases for adults, which is a good thing. You don't want to have to pay for them. But just so many people then rushed to take advantage of it. And the quests of the world could not can't, you know, process them in time. So we have these massive delays in getting um, the PCR, the diagnostic test results back. And, you know, if you wait 12 days to get your results back, you might as well not have bothered at all. It's, it's almost meaningless to get your results back so late. So it's really a shame. Okay, absolutely agree. Um, everything, you know, every program that I'm seeing and now school's starting. Right? Yeah. So we're trying to think if we had a federally mandated policy for schools or a national mm-hmm. policy, how would that help? Um, from personal experience, I know University of Tampa doesn't do any testing. Oh, I know the state of New York, the SUNY schools, they test be- once to allow the kids into the dorms for the first time. Oh, interesting. Okay. And then you have schools like Tufts that test each student twice a week. Oh, wow. So it's across the board. Um, So uh, Margaret Bordeaux uh, is the research director of the Program of Global Public Policy at Harvard Medical School. And she wrote a couple weeks back. She writes, as summer turns to fall, slow and fragmented testing will fatally undermine the reopening of schools and universities whose plans are predicated on quickly identifying outbreaks and suppressing spread. Testing for millions of students will feed into an already failing national system. Now, you talked before about the bottleneck. 
mm-hmm. of all the tests. Now all these kids going to school now all at the same time yeah. right now. I have to imagine that's increasing the bottleneck. What, what, what are your thoughts and what do you think we're going to see? Yeah, I, I would agree with you. I don't think we've gotten to the point where we can, you know, where it's streamlined enough that people can get tests back in a, in a reliable manner to, to act on them. And, and it really is, you know, a shame because, as you said, the safe reopening is sort of predicated on having this infrastructure in place. And it's, it's really not, you know, it's, it's really not uh, reliably in place. To, to process these tests in time for, for students and, and faculty and administration. Yeah, and another thing that you mentioned before, you mentioned South Korea, how they still mm-hmm. had their plans in place and they did a great job with their testing. One thing also that they've kept in place and, and have built, I should say, mm-hmm. uh, off of this has been contact tracing. Yes. Mm-hmm. Now, without rapid test results, contract contact tracing is impossible isn't it yes it certainly becomes much more difficult because let's say you you have a diagnostic you have a test and you wait a week or even two weeks to get those results then you get back a positive well you have to think maybe in the subsequent two weeks you were waiting for results you were in contact with that many poor people and i guess the point of contract tracing is you have to then go back to everybody who you were in contact with and and say hey you know i might have exposed you and then they have to reach out to their contacts and it's sort of this web you know of of all the exposures potential exposures but yeah it just becomes that much more difficult if you have to wait forever and um have that many more potential people to have to reach out to not only that but let's say you have to wait two weeks to get your results well, maybe you were negative. The diagnostic test is a snapshot in time. You, you, are you infected or not at the moment of the test? Well, maybe you were negative at the moment of the test, but you subsequently got, went to a party and you got infected, you know, you, and then, but you get your negative result back a couple of days after you go to that party. Well, that could lead, lead you into a false sense of security because you're not actually negative. You have subsequently gotten infected, but that at that snapshot in time when you had your diagnostic Gnostic test, you were not infected. So there are so many problems with these delays in testing results. That's a fantastic point. Absolutely. All right. Let's turn then to antibodies Mm -hmm. and antibody testing. So as you reported, there are, at the time you reported, there were 14 antibody tests on the market. Mm -hmm. And some of these tests have been criticized for reporting false positives and false negatives. Mm-hmm. Now, why don't you explain what that means? What is a false positive, false negative, and what is there a, a federal range where it's acceptable for these tests? Yeah. So the the accuracy. Well, actually, before I get into the, what makes an accurate antibody test, let's say a false positive is as it sounds. It's when the test says you have antibodies in your blood, but you actually don't. It picked up on something that is actually not, it it registered something that wasn't there. So it's a false positive, whereas a false negative, the test did not pick up on the presence of antibodies that were actually in your blood. They failed to detect the presence of antibodies. And um, we've been getting a lot of these because, especially in the beginning, these tests were coming out with wildly varying quality, some not very good at all. And um, the accuracy of an antibody test depends on two factors. It's called the sensitivity and the specificity. The sensitivity gauges whether the test can pick up on antibodies if they're present. 
And then the specificity is whether the test can uh, detect the difference between the antibodies for the coronavirus versus the antibodies for, excuse me, the new coronavirus, which is SARS-CoV-2. That's what the, the antibodies for that virus that causes the coronavirus versus other coronaviruses. SARS was a coronavirus. MERS was a coronavirus. So your body could have other coronavirus antibodies, but not this specific one. So if the test is not specific enough, it could pick up on the wrong antibodies. So basically what you want to have on both of these two factors, the sensitivity and the specificity, you want it close to 100% as possible. You want them in the high 90, you know, 99%, 100%. If they're 100% specific and 100% sensitive, then that's a really accurate test. But we've had tests that are, especially the early ones that are nowhere near that. And they're throwing off a lot of especially false positives, which can lead people into sort of a false sense of security. Right. And these are, as you said earlier, these are the blood tests, mm-hmm. not necessarily the nasal swab tests. Yes. These are the blood tests. Yeah. It's not a prick. They take a whole little vial and they um, test the, the presence. They test for the presence of these antibodies. Okay. Now, from a biology point of view, there are many different aspects of this virus. Yep. And there are different tests that test for different parts of the virus. Mm-hmm. So is one better than the other? Is if you find one, you have the other, or if you're testing for one and it's not there, but you could still have it. My understanding right? is that if you have one, you probably have the other. Like, you know, in other words, that the immune response is a coordinated response. It's like, you know, the virus is the invading army. The immune response is a cavalry that comes in. There are different parts of that. Like I was talking to a immunologist yesterday who said that the first antibodies to rush in at the point of infection are kind of crappy. They don't stick that well. They're not great, but they're fast. So they try to hold off the invader until the more specific antibodies can come in and really attach. And then you've got, and then if the virus exceeds the antibodies capacity, you've got some memory B cells come in and then the T cells come later. So it's this whole coordinated response. It really is quite amazing when you think about it. And from my understanding is that if you have one of these immune pieces, like if you have the T cells, you've got the other stuff. Like it all, it's all kind of comes, it all works together. And they all eventually become present in your blood if you are fighting an infection. All right. And, and that's, that's important. Uh, mm-hmm. That whole jumbled soup that yes. we'll call it. Uh-huh. Now, But these tests also test the amount of antibodies in in your blood. Yes. And the more, the higher the antibody you have, um, the safer you are, correct? Well, that's what what they had thought. But it's interesting. This um, doctor I was talking to yesterday, his name is Dr. Deepta Bhattacharya. He's an immunobiologist at the University of Arizona. And he recently did a test that was really interesting. Um, Initial tests had said, studies, I should say, had found that the presence of antibodies, like after you've recovered from the coronavirus, several months pass, your levels of antibodies fall. And that was presented in some uh, accounts, some reports of these studies as an alarming thing. Oh, no, our, our levels of antibodies go way down. So thus, we are less safe. But this doctor I talked to yesterday, Dr. Bhattacharya, said 
actually, it's not alarming. It's to be expected because the body can't sustain that kind of really intense immune response forever. It's not supposed to. Like the, the cavalry rushes in, it, they do their job, they fight the infection. And then when the threat retreats, they also retreat, but they don't completely go away. They stay at these low levels. And then if you get reinfected, or if the, if you, if the virus tries to enter your body again, they jump, they spring into action. So it's not necessarily a bad thing to have low levels of antibodies. They're just sort of lying in wait to be, you know, activated again if there's a future threat. And, and yeah, and that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I mean, we heard this week, it was first, it was reported that uh, there were three patients so far, um, confirmed reports that three patients have gotten the coronavirus now for the second time. Mm-hmm but all three of them are almost asymptomatic. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it did not come back as hard. So those memory cells make a lot of, make a lot of sense to exactly. me. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And apparently do the T cells also help there. The T cells that hang around after the infection aren't going to help you from getting reinfected, but if you do get reinfected, they're going to help you from getting really sick. They're going to help mitigate the infection. So yeah, that's, they definitely, um, you know, are, are waiting to, to be, reactivated it if in the event of a future threat got it now earlier we talked about the lack of uh uh covid testing mm-hmm. virus testing but um i think you wrote about or you know definitely been reading the fda granted emergency approval to two companies quidel corp mm-hmm. and for, to becton dickinson uh for the production of rapid antibody yes. tests both companies reporting difficulty ramping up production mm-hmm. Can you talk about this? Is, is it hard? Is this something new? You know, it, it's, they've been doing this. This is what they do. Yeah, you know, that's an excellent point. This is what they do. So you'd think that they would be, be able to marshal the resources in the event of a national crisis, which we indeed are in the middle of. Now, to be honest, I have not reported on this issue. The Wall Street Journal has, and they have said that, uh, their reporters have said that these two companies are having trouble sourcing needed materials like collection swabs and testing kits. And they also actually make, not only do they make the tests, but they make like this box that analyze the tests. And that's a good thing because if a doctor's office or a school can get their hands on one of these analyzers, they can process their own samples and they're not sending them out to some big processing center that's going to get bottlenecked. So it's good if you can get your hands on one, but I guess they're having trouble ramping up production to make enough of them. And to the extent that they are able to make them, my understanding um, is that nursing homes are getting them first. So the priority is going to the nursing homes and there's less to go around for other places. So why this is happening, I couldn't tell you. Um, yeah, it's a mystery <laughs> to all of us. Great thing. It's, you have yeah. one job. Um, yeah, all right. right. <laughs> so last question. Um, just read um, the the whole back to school thing, the Los Angeles yeah. school district, right? The mm-hmm. whole LA school system will provide, and I'll quote what they said, regular testing and contact tracing mm-hmm. for every single student and employee in the district. Now that's over 675,000 students mm-hmm. and teachers. Talk about a backlog and bottleneck. Yes, you know? that. Let's talk about what are they going to be testing for? How do you think they can make this happen? Especially where nowhere else in the country has been successful in mass testing. How can they go out and raise the flag saying that's what they're going to do now? Yes, it is a very ambitious program. And um, my understanding is that that 
the school district started remotely, so they're not putting this into place immediately, but they want to get it into place for the eventual resumption of in-person learning, right? So they're going to be rolling it out over the coming months. And I don't know how they're going to do it. They, I think, are going to be using, this is going to be another diagnostic test to detect an active infection. But I think I was reading in the LA Times that it's going to be a saliva test. So not this nasal swab. It might be a saliva test that you can administer yourself. So potentially that takes away one element of the bottleneck if, if you're able to get the test into the hands of people, they do it themselves. And But there's still plenty of other stages along that, you know, that could potentially get bogged down, you know, like those samples need to be collected, they need to be processed, the results need to come out. Um, they're not doing it alone. They're doing it in under the oversight of epidemiologists from Stanford, UCLA, Johns Hopkins. So they got some pretty smart minds looking over things. So with any luck, they can make it work. You know, that could, if it, they succeed against all odds, that could be a great model for, for other systems around the that country. Would be, that would be a fantastic model. And mm-hmm. one I'd love, uh, I'd love to roll out nationwide. Elizabeth, thank you so much. This has been really, really uh, educational, entertaining, interesting. Uh, you know, it, it, you've been fantastic. I appreciate this. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's been fun. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. If you have any questions, comments, or future story suggestions, please reach out to us on social media. Thank you. And we hope you enjoyed the RP HealthCast. <laughs>